0: Friends. Welcome to World Build With Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. I'm Rob Hilferty, and I'm here with Deacon of Dick Jokes, Chris Prunty, as well as continued special guest, Daniel Quinn. Gentlemen, how are we doing today?
1: Fantastic.
0: Great. On today's episode, we are blessed, hashtag blessed, to be joined by Jim Davis from the YouTube channel WebDM. If you haven't seen their series or or their channel in general, you really should. Uh, I mean, not just, for, not just if you're interested in like D&D 5e or D&D or RPGs in general, but if you ever really want to sit down and listen to two guys talk about very intricate details of different types of fantastical races or different aspects of fantasy worlds, that is one of the best places to do it. So we're going to go ahead and cut straight to the interview now, and we'll see you on the other side. All right, hello. We are here and honored to be with Jim Davis of WebDM, among many other accolades. But, uh, Jim, why don't you go ahead and start off by telling us a little bit about
2: yourself? (laughs) Uh, Well, I, uh, wow, I'm a full-time YouTuber, (laughs) which is a weird, weird place uh, to be in. (laughs) And, uh, but mostly I'm someone who's, like, all my life have had this... uh, you know, this hobby, Dungeons and Dragons and role playing that I've used as a way to uh, you know make sure my friends have an excuse to hang out, <laughs> that we've got time off of work that we can say is no, it's a thing. It's scheduled. It's not just a hangout, you know. And uh, <laughs> found that you know my my desire to deliver a fun and engaging uh, game experience uh, for for my friends turned into a lot a head full of useful advice for others. And uh, I, I happened to know some, some friends who had video camera, and uh, we all just I don't know I'm I'm a I guess I'm a natural like put me in front of a camera or a mirror or something, and I'll just you know I I light up and <laughs> I I I like the performance part of it, and so I took to it really well, and uh, lo and behold, we had something to say that uh, role players out there and D and D players out there were really connecting with, and we just happened by pure luck to start uh, it, right around the time that say critical role was getting really big and fifth edition was coming out and uh, so we rode this wave of popularity that um, it's just like completely changed all of our lives. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's uh, I guess that's me in a nutshell a uh, snapshot in 2020.
0: That's that's a pretty good snapshot to look at actually. That's uh that's not bad. Yeah. And it's it's funny that one thing that I keep hearing over and over again as we do these interviews is um kind of like the 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 the, the luck-based nature of yeah. this type of industry that we find ourselves because yeah. Uh be, being a hobbyist yeah. is easy, but being someone who gets paid to do this is a pipe dream for a lot of people
2: it really is and and it you know i've always i've been someone who's followed the industry and the hobby from like the sidelines pretty much since i started connecting internet and role playing like in the late 90s i was like oh what's going on is dungeons and dragons do they have a website and <laughs> you know uh, <laughs> either lurking on forums or or just like following who the developers were and like what they'd done before and I, um, I, I'd I always known that this was a passion, like p- for people with a, like a passion for it, that there were very few people who were raking it in. And when we were able to go full time, it like threw things into sharp perspective because we'd be at conventions with, uh, you know, indie game designers who are struggling to get a name out for, uh, you know, their games that they're designing and they desperately want people to play them and get excited about them and buy their books. And like, I'm like, I i guys like what can we do to help <laughs> uh just because i knew that we were in a unique position uh given that i guess uh, people i i honestly don't know why people like us <laughs> I, I i see a, us as basically saying like just some common sense sort of uh you know this seems obvious kind of stuff but i'm assured that that's not always the case <laughs> i trust other people on this rather than myself
0: <laughs> I've got to say that a big part of your appeal, at least for me, is your Photoshop game that you have for oh, yeah. your for your <laughs> icons. The most recent one, as a big Fleetwood Mac fan, the fact that you and Pruitt are are the cover of Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Just, I was like, oh man, that's that. Yeah. I'm throwing that in there.
2: I mean, yeah, how yeah, does it I, feel, uh, by the way, to be in Fleetwood Mac? That's got to be a great achievement. I mean, you know, I, I, it's a good honor, I'm I guess. Su- I suppose that, if, you know, if I think about it, I like it. But, uh, you know, it pales in comparison to being a DM. So, you know. Oh,
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking of, your, um, of the channel itself, um, yeah. when you guys were first starting out with that, was there like a tipping point when you're like, wow, we're really onto to something and, you know, we're building our viewer base?
2: Yeah. Yeah, we... Um, so our first year that we did it, we actually took us more than a it took us more than a year actually to get to ten thousand, and that that sort of first stretch to hitting ten thousand uh, followers was was a big milestone for me, mostly because it's like all right, it's it's sort of a your first kind of woohoo big deal uh, kind of moment. Uh, we were invited to the uh, YouTube Studios in Austin. There's like a Google headquarters there. Something had a, had a uh, sort of like a free-for-use YouTube studio for everybody who was above a certain follower count or something. Um, and they invited us out the same day that we'd hit the benchmark. And we got to film in uh, the same studio where <laughs> Robert Rodriguez films his El Rey uh, Luchador TV show, <laughs> so there's like oh my god, all of really? these wow. like <laughs> pro wrestling sets with like these giant uh, like Olmec and Aztec heads uh, as you know props around, and then like a chest full of bloody body parts from <laughs> uh, Death Proof, I think. <laughs> oh my god, so, that's man. amazing! <laughs> uh, yeah, we shot Lycanthropes there and had a lot of fun with the props. Oh, um, I can't even imagine. And, and like, that was the year that we did that. And then a few months later, we we went to Pack South. And for me, Pack South uh, in 2018, 2017 was like a huge, oh my God, moment because we just like, we couldn't walk 10 feet without somebody wanting to talk to us, wanting to say hi. Um, I'm a very kind of introverted person. Uh, <laughs> I don't usually do well with big crowds. I mostly want to just sit somewhere and be quiet. And so it was a little, like, shocking to me, but it also was like, there's are real people on the other end of that computer. Like, I'm not just talking into the void, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and a lot of times it can feel that way because it's just the three of us, four of us now uh, that my, uh, my wife and uh, partner joined the business. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's, it was, it's good. That's, that's when the turning point for me was, was like actually meeting people who enjoy and who could look you in the eye and say, watching this video when you said this, like completely changed my game for the better. I'm like, I don't, that was just a throwaway comment. <laughs> like, I'm really glad it helped. Uh, it was, uh, it, those are really powerful moments for me.
0: I, I can imagine. I mean, as someone who's received all of two emails <laughs> uh, that that are that are fan mail, it, it really is. It's it's a really cool kind of feeling to be like, oh wow, someone listens to us. We're not just doing this for my
2: mom, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. Well, so my my dad is a Southern Baptist preacher, which is uh, not as bad as it sounds, and I, so I was always. <laughs> I have a frame of reference, you know, every Sunday I'd watch him preach for two to 300 people. And like, we grew up in a small town. And so it was one of those, everybody knew me as the preacher's kid, everybody knew the preacher. And so like, I, it was when I started looking at numbers and I was like, that's like an order of magnitude bigger than our, you know, the biggest Easter Sunday I can imagine, mm. you know, like, and I, I remember telling my dad that I was like, dad, we've, we've got you know, several thousand people a week, if not more, uh, you know, watching and he, you know, that's when the numbers start becoming more than just, uh, you know, digits on a screen. It's sort of like, yeah, those are hopefully those are people who are getting something uh, useful and good and lights their imagination on fire and helps them have a great game.
0: So integers of churchgoers is an important view. Yes, that's how, yeah, that's
2: how I make, that's my frame of reference. How many of these churchgoers could be secret D&D players? Let's convert them. Oh, that's perfect. (laughs) And and actually that kind of,
0: that brings me to one of my questions. Like you, you're Texas based, correct?
2: Uh, Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. So, so I have to ask, what do you think being Texas based really brings to, and Southern to, Mm -hmm. to, you know, in a certain spec? What does that bring to world building that is particularly unique to to the spectrum, right? Because like we're we're New Englanders. Sure. So we get the gray, dreary cold. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a common thing.
2: Oh, I well, but- I live in Vermont now. I, I grew up uh, in oh, Texas, oh, but okay. I live in Vermont now. But so I have a bit of both worlds there. Uh and I, I would say for me in, in central Texas, it's um like you know that moment when you're baking something and you've preheated the oven. And yes, you pull the oven down, and it's just a blast of hot air, and it fogs your glasses up,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: and all that. That's like every time you go outside in the summer, where where <laughs> I grew up, it's like literally a, such a temperature difference between inside and outside. It's it's like winter right now, um, and and you treat it a lot of the same way. It's like the outside is hostile. <laughs> we're, we're not we're not going to go outside except for me. I liked uh, exercising and walking in like at three in the afternoon when it's the hottest. Um, just cause I really like to sweat. <laughs> it's sort of a, it lets me know that I'm alive kind of thing. It's like, if I didn't, if this wasn't a pleasant neighborhood I was walking through, this would be a life or death situation. Uh, is usually how I like to think about it. And that's usually when I do my best uh, DM prep uh, as well as sort of walks in extreme weather, but that's just a, a tangent. Uh, I think what uh, what I would bring is is a sense of the environment being, um, uh, like it's more hostile there than in New England. New England has this the cycles and the seasons there. There's the every you know wait a little bit and it'll change kind of attitude. The, the The summers here are amazing. I've never seen this much green. There's nothing like that in Central Texas. It is 365 days a year, twenty four seven. Just everything out there is trying to kill you. It's scorpions, spiders, poisonous snakes, uh, stinging nettles and spines. Everything is sharp, dry, crispy. Um, it's just a place where, you know, you're, you're kind of, uh, <laughs> everything's a little ornery and just a little prickly. Uh, and I think I'd bring that, uh, you know, the impact of the environment on the people and animals that live there is certainly uh, an aspect of world building I like incorporating. So I'll
1: take that. Yeah. uh, I've been to Texas and Arizona like Mm -hmm. once or twice in my life, but uh, walking through, yeah, I have Uh, (laughs) walking through the, the heat did kind of make you think of it. Just like, Oh, I can see the wavy lines out in the distance. Uh I Uh feel like I'm (laughs) trugging through. It makes what I'm doing feel epic, even though I'm just walking down the street.
2: Yeah. It's that, that moment you can feel your skin crisping uh is the <laughs> is the moment that i'm looking for yeah uh and so the cool desert right I, i'm always drawn to desert settings as a result i love dark sun i love uh my own homebrew setting is is largely desert uh it's so it's uh that's it's the land between
0: really two love. rivers is that right yeah land between two rivers mesopotamia
2: yeah. uh it's uh, taken from mesopotamia but i and certainly inspired by uh, bronze age mesopotamia
3: yeah, like speaking of world building tips, um, especially since you know you've been DMing forever, and I was listening to the creating of campaign video that you had talked about, and you mm-hmm. talked about um, NPC relationships and how you kind of set the stage before you think about how the adventure is going to be devised. Do yeah. you have tips for um, creatives who maybe they're not role playing, but stuff you've learned in DMing for so long that could apply to them when they're building their worlds?
2: Yeah, so I I like to to have a, 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 a mix of familiar and, uh, and surprise. So I don't have like a rubric or anything for sort of what I include. It, it's more of a feel. I, uh, as part of my campaign prep, I will read a lot of genre fiction for whatever I'm trying to get into, try to watch something or, or, uh, you know, if, if there's a, if especially if there's a visual element to it, it's very powerful. So I use a lot of Pinterest boards in my DM prep. And, um, if I had the, uh, patients would actually use them in game as like, roll on this encounter table and tell me what you get. And it's like 20 pictures or something, um, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> as a, as a way to like evoke feeling. So I'm looking for elements, uh, that are going to drive action in this, in this case, they're going to react or provoke action from the players. But if it was like a, you know, not necessarily a role-playing situation, they would be the prime movers of the story or a secondary movers or something um and i i want something that's going to fill that double role of iconic for the genre and tone i'm going for but with something that is uh not obvious something that's new that's uh, a fresh take so if i'm going with like a power hungry wizard uh or, or something like that then i might put uh you know the old me might've put it like sympathetic motivations, but I now feel that's a little played out (laughs) in some ways, like the villain who's sympathetic. Uh, So it might be that the nature of the power that they are uh, pursuing isn't the usual cthulhu abomination (laughs) or, or hellish, uh, you know, infernal power, but it's something else. Like it's, it's maybe a force for good that's being twisted and, and, and used for nefarious purposes or something, or, um, you know, someone who's being tricked into aiding this, uh, uh, wizard or power seeker. I don't know, just, um, any way I can mix and mash things because for me, it's like, I've fantasy has never stopped capturing my imagination, but parts of it have. And the Tolkien-esque, uh, standard Renfair fantasy, just, it, it doesn't cut it for me in terms of like wanting to engage with it. And so I'm always trying to think of ways to uh, make the old new again, or reimagine it so that it's uh, fresh without <laughs> without having to do a lot of work on my end with like making new monsters and stat blocks and all that stuff.
3: <laughs> so you need to like I add think. a twist, basically. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. But it's to me, it's it's a twist in a very sp- specific kind of direction. It's uh, you know, it's not necessarily just any old random thing. It's like taking whatever is least resonating with me about the, the archetype and l- digging deep into both what that component is, like what's going on with it? Why don't I like it? Uh What do I wish it, it accomplished? And like, I wish I could say it was something more than just a lot of sitting and thinking, <laughs> but right. it, it is a lot of sitting and thinking.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I think one of the biggest, One of the biggest like toolkits that a DM can have is like learning how to reskin certain things and learning how to repurpose certain things to make them just more fitting or more interesting. Mm. I mean, certain things you can just make so much more evocative either by filing the numbers off just a little bit or calling it something else. Yeah. Uh, From, from my own example, I remember one of, one of the most terrifying villains that I've ever had my PC's face before (laughs) was just a bugbear And because I called it the beast and I described it in kind of these certain ways, like they had no idea that it was this kind of, it was just, you know, like a CR two monster that had some class levels and whatnot. And just reskinning it just a little bit to make it more flavorful and make it seem like unknown and scarier is just so much more interesting.
2: Mm -hmm, mm. I, I have a rule for myself and I try very hard not to call monsters by their monster manual name. Like I don't call your, you know, nobody refers to you as Khmer fighter, you, you know, like, <laughs> right. it's, you know, they're not goblins, they're they're little snots or they're, uh, you know, they're hinderlings or, or something like that. Or it's not a, it's not a manticore, it's it's a crowned beast or a man tiger or something like that. You know, mm. uh, I really like digging into uh, the origins of monster names and like going back and finding through like say the 19th century uh anthropologists and sociologists who are recording folk tales to like linguists who go further back and like you mentioned bugbear bugbear means sort of like uh, someone who jumps out and scares you and it refers to an old english like a scarecrow basically and you'll see some old, if you go like further back in D&D's history, you'll find like illustrations of bugbears with like pumpkin heads. And they're, they're not these shaggy sort of orangutan big goblins that we have now. They're kind of, they look more like just creepy fairies with menacing pumpkins and big spiky weapons that are going to come club you to death. <laughs> um, and it's like, that's the kind of reimagining that I like. Like I would present maybe not bug bears, but bugaboos to, uh, <laughs> to a group, no stat change at all, you know, just keep them as is, but, you know, just a little change like that can really unnerve veteran players. Yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but,
0: I like
3: the saying you know, that's reimagining That's a really great word to use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: You were, you were kind of hinting at, I mean, you were, you know, like the history of, you know, folklores and monsters. And if I'm not mistaken, you have like, that was your kind of academic path when you went through college and whatnot. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I am. I have a master's degree in history, uh, military history specifically. Um, And it was getting, getting that was like, I I don't want to go any further, please. Like (laughs) it was uh, especially not when I was uh, looking at people who had sort of graduated a few years ahead of me and the sort of jobs they were getting was like, that seems like a lot of work for Not enough of a living wage. (laughs) So I, uh, yeah, that's, I jumped off at uh, a terminal master's degree and, um, but ended up writing uh, my thesis over the transition from aristocratic uh, knights as the mounted warriors of battlefield to like professional mounted soldiers and like how it goes from this, um, you know, warrior who's very much individual focused, their honor, their glory, that kind of thing. To someone who's got to like ride knee to knee with the riders next to them and not get out of line, not break ranks, <laughs> face down musket fire, and uh, yet still be a force on the battlefield. and So it ended up, I'll, I, pr- I will tie this back to d I promise. Uh, it, <laughs> it ended up reading a lot of personal accounts of people who were soldiers at the time. Uh, one of the curious things about the printing press is that there's like this explosion of how-to books in the, in the 15 and 1600s. And so you can go back and read like how to cook, how to train a dog, how to train a horse, how to arrange flowers. Uh, and there are, there's basically like how to do war books, which are <laughs> a bunch of English soldiers of fortune and mercenaries fighting for foreign countries, writing about their experiences. And they will write about the exploits on the battlefield. And they're always dressed in colorful, like peacock feather cloaks or great big plumed helmets they really want to be seen. They don't want to fade into the background. They want everybody to know this is me. I'm out front. I'm in the breach. I took the cannons. That sort of thing. And it to me just had D&D all over it. Uh and I I've never not been inspired when I go digging through history regardless of time or place <laughs> and like come away with a bunch of D&D adventure ideas. Um just cuz it's the best source book we've got. <laughs>
0: I really couldn't agree any more with that. As someone who tries to bring in as much history as possible, because I mean, if you want to talk about reskinning, I mean, why not do that with historical events as well? Or oh yeah, um, it's it's it just, it's just such. I mean, history provides so many plot hooks on its own, right? Oh yeah, why not just yeah. steal one?
2: You absolutely, know? absolutely, and and some of them are like they can frame sort of your entire campaign, um, and and not to mention the fact that there are figures of history who are probably you know they, they're like the model of a D character uh you, you know i look at someone like say alexander the great and it's like oh, even if half the things written about him are true this guy is a player character written all over him like <laughs> trained by a the philosopher of his time conquers half more than half the known world like no cause it's outrageous it's ridiculous um
0: I'm, and yet, I'm pretty sure that Tamirith of Scythia <laughs> was a character that I've played at one point as oh, well. Oh yeah, oh yeah. She's just such a badass. It's like, awesome. how is she not a 20th level fighter back in that day? Like, right. come on, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, Bronze Age and sort of like classical history to me has always resonated more as D and esque than medieval history. Um, and so I always like looking to it for uh, inspiration. It's one of my favorites. I think it's because there's a lot more space in
0: between us and the bronze age. So it feels a little bit more fantastical and a little bit more um, what's alien, you know, like something that feels more fantastical overall. Yeah. It's called
2: Scythia, not Ukraine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Also uh, do you want to, do you want to fight over Scythia or Scythia or you do not have the time for that?
2: (coughs) Oh, can we fight over Macedonia or Macedonia as well? Like I'll, I, I'll go, I'll go hard. I'll go hard C
0: on that. I'll go Macedonia. Absolutely.
2: I, <coughs> excuse me. I usually like Thank to do you. the hard C just cause it like it's a further sort of separation. Uh, but I mix it up yeah. a lot too.
0: <laughs> Same like with, with Genghis Khan, uh, uh, when I found out that it was pronounced Genghis Khan or Chinggis Khan, I was like, "Oh, c- come on!" But Genghis sounds a little bit cooler, right? Mm-hmm. Right, it, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And but now it's like oh, I, I kind of want to be more historically accurate. Sure, it's sure. Fine.
2: It's uh, you know, it it history is one of those things where some I had a professor tell me he's like history is like you're you're all gardeners, and you are arguing to the death about the color of the wings on the beetle outside. Like it's just you you these minutia become so important. Uh, Did the Greeks hold their spears overhanded or underhanded when they fought in a phalanx? Uh, Friendships have been ruined over that question.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and another favorite uh, another favorite quote of mine, which I'm going to butcher, so excuse me. Mm -hmm. Is um, I believe it is uh, ancient history. Like, hold, I'm I'm just going to fuck it up again. Hold on, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it's something along the lines of. Ancient history is almost certainly false, but we must believe it to
2: be true. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's all we have. It's all you on. have. Yeah. There's so little that yeah. survives that to know anything is a miracle. <laughs> and especially once you yeah, start reading really. how it survived. It's like, oh, yeah, a monk needed some new paper and just like put some white out on this. And then we scraped it off. And now we know what it says underneath. <laughs> it's like, yeah, geez.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and- commodification of like knowledge and history was not really a thing back then no, because but, it was a matter of like, we need to not die today. Right. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> yes. And so it makes the past, uh, to me, the past is a wonderful playground in that way. And I know some people that worry about like, you know, because you are dealing with real world cultures, real world religions, like how much of that to play around with and how much of that to respect and, and not, uh, not incorporate. And like, I, I kind of go back and forth, but I think as long as you're, doing it from a place of respect and humility then like even if you mess up even if you do something that's like oh you know maybe we don't want to role play out historical religious conflicts or something like that but it kind of like i don't know just happened we were in the moment i don't know uh, <laughs> that um you know you can at least walk it back and apologize or whatever you know i i it's um you know, I, I, when I think about historical role playing and how much of it I want to do versus how much of it I've been able to convince people to do, uh, most of it's been like the, you know, well, I don't know that much about it or I don't want to, you know, do something like that would that would be either they would find offensive or that would offend someone else. And it's like, come on, we can have a uh, a nice time playing in the past and being inspired by it and like exploring these little question marks that we have. Um uh, without like I don't know without being offensive (laughs) so I don't know that's uh I guess that's my nutshell thoughts on historical role-playing
3: excellent uh Daniel you had a question Oh my gosh. I don't even want to interrupt the awesome nerding out <laughs> on the history here, but it's kind of a cycling since you mentioned like players and involving them in particular kinds of role play. Mm-hmm. So you had, um, an episode about, um, kind of the golden rule in social contracts, you know, with your players. Yeah. Um, so I had a question in the sense that, okay, well, we've got social contract in terms of how we're going to interact with each other as players. What about when it comes to, um, creating the world so the collaborative act of like world building what kind of rules do you have with your players and how much they contribute to the world versus how much you're setting up for them
2: yeah i I mean that's so group dependent i don't i don't really have any hard and fast like always this way or always the other i i uh i try to leave the door open for as much as the players want to engage with uh and, and i've got some People I play with who are very much, they will take the reins and, and go and, and in a lot of ways that are very uh, helpful. Um, and then others that, you know, you can tell they're either new to it or, or just don't want to, they, they don't want that authority. Part of uh, the, the appeal of it is like playing from this ex, this very much like character centered moment and to say like, I'm going to you know dictate something or, or establish something about the game world is it, just not why they're here. Um, and so I find it's usually a session zero thing, I will float it out at some point of that I like to, uh, you know, leave the door open and, and sort of like express support for collaborative world building, the types of settings that I create have lots of blank spaces in them. Um, so that I purposefully, you know, I want people to come in and be like, I don't want to have to <laughs> fill out all these places, like, <laughs> it would be fun for someone else to kind of contribute. Um, but I understand if I'm playing a traditional RPG that the expectation is the DM is going to do the bulk of that, and that the contributions the players will make either uh, won't be significant, which I don't necessarily agree with, or uh, you know can't like alter the quote-unquote story, which is another uh, a term I don't usually use in my own campaigns. Um, so an example of that would be, I might ask in a questionnaire before the, the play be, uh, before plays began, you know, tongue tied. I'll ask in a questionnaire before play begins, the, um, you know, something about their character, what, uh, you know, what do they know about, um, you know, the world that they live in, how long have they lived in the location that they, uh, you know, that, that we're going to start the game in. And then I'll usually ask a question like, what do they know? that no one else knows. Uh, and and in parentheses, I'll put including me, the DM, right? Like tell me something about my world that I don't even know. And that's like a little piece that the player's going to bring that's a part of their character. And I will start using those to like fill in blank spots in my NPCs, my villains, my stuff I got going on. And I found that's a really useful tool for Uh, you know getting players in there and then if they don't care they just write a stupid meaningless secret (laughs) you know (laughs) Uh, so it's (laughs) it's it's an opportunity and they can take it or leave it uh, as they like so i
3: love that
2: yeah
1: so uh on your channel you seem to focus a lot on fifth edition and i believe it's either out or coming out soon it's like ancient arcana yeah yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. Unearthed Arcana. Yeah, Arcana of the Ancients. No, no, I thought
1: it was oh. Arcana of the Ancients. That yes. was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Monty Cook Games yeah. Uh, supplement. Yeah. Uh, now, I've also seen before where you say, like, oh, in, in a way, every setting is kind of post-apocalyptic. But mm. uh, do you find that 5th edition lends itself better to being set in a science-fantasy kind of world than others? Because I always find that world very hard to find a system that's good for it. Yeah, yeah. To me,
2: Numenera was sort of the first that came along and was like, had this seamless uh, quality to it that could straddle that genre divide. And I find that like 5th edition has a similar uh, vagueness to it that uh, you can, you know, in the act of play sort of nail down exactly like, well, okay, how exactly does this power work? You know, it's in some ways, 5th edition is a lot like 4th uh, edition in that you have these powers that you have, and they sort of work, and and you're given a little bit of the the flavor of them, the the lore of them, but it's really just the mechanics, and then you're heavily encouraged to kind of reskin your powers and, uh, you know, present them as, as a part of your character. And I think that can be a really powerful world-building tool, because you could say, Yeah. Your character thinks it's magic (laughs) and the spell Hmm. slot is just a abstraction. It's a game mechanic. It has no uh, correlation in the real world. It's a way to measure out power through the game. Uh, But what you're really doing is accessing, you know, a cloud of nanites that the ancients put into the air, you know, eons ago. And, you know, through an accident of birth, you've got the ability to, uh, you know, interface with them and now you need to learn the codes and then it did, you know, but it, it just produces the spell effect basically. And that reskinning of how and why powers work, uh, is, is a space that both players and dungeon masters or world builders can like really dig deep and define the parameters of their world. Like, is this a place where the laws of nature as we understand them in our world, uh, the, do they apply, and then everything fantastical is like outside of that, and it's it, there's consequences for breaking the the natural laws of the world, or is it a place like uh, say Jeremy Crawford and the rest of the D D team talk about where Dungeons and Dragons worlds have an inherent magic in them, almost like the Force, right? It flows through everything, and spells are just uh, one manifestation of that, and those are the kinds of questions where I'll spend hours just working through the implications for it. It's like, what does that mean for XP? You know, does that mean that everyone who has more than one hit dice is channeling magic somehow? You know, just all of these uh, questions that'll come out of just how you conceive of the basic underlying metaphysics and structure of your world. And um, I like to use that those sorts of secrets that kind of deep world building the foundations of this fictional place that we're going to make alive we're going to make it come to life during play are really great for uh like seating as sort of villainous plots or locations that something uh, of of epic importance is going to happen and so like just putting a little bit of thought into them so if the players scratch the surface there's something there is is um is really great it's really satisfying, yeah. Uh,
0: big shout out to Monte Cook Games and oh, yeah. Numenera, and yes, the Cipher System in general, which I'm currently running a game in right now, and it is phenomenal. It really is, and. Oh, yeah. As, as someone who's not a fan of post-apocalyptic content, uh, I do love Numenera, which is not only one post-apocalypse, but mm-hmm. at least nine. At least nine. <laughs> so I think, that, I
2: think that makes up for my otherwise disdain
0: for post-apocalyptic settings.
2: Sure, sure. And, and their post-apocalypse <laughs> is hopeful. And it's kind of like what I wanted yes. to do with Land Between Two Rivers, uh, at least in my original conception of it, was, yeah, it's 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 post-apocalypse, but the we're here to build something new not like roll around in the ashes of what was you know uh and and a lot of reasons why i went with no humans no dwarves no elves um because it's like none of this is theirs uh what i love about numenera in the ninth world is like humanity's returned but they're like biologically 20th century humans for the most part and so it's like where did they go (laughs) why did they return what happened all of the changes that have made make, it's like a familiar world, but it's also alien. And that's a kind of apocalypse that like, I don't see a lot of, we get a lot of the Mad Max, the walking dead, the environmental disaster type, uh, apocalypses, but not, yeah, these people could just reshape the planet at their whim, the solar system at their whim. And now they're just gone, you know, (laughs) and they left their stuff behind, uh, I enjoy uh, that part of it.
0: Yeah, actually, considering that you just brought up Land Between Two Rivers again, I do want to talk a little bit about your setting. Oh, sure. And you're currently running a game on Twitch, uh, The Poison Sea. Is that right?
2: Uh, it, it is on hiatus just because uh, life uh, got a bit <laughs> too much for the time that we could all play D&D. There's a a weird part about uh, playing a game on stream where you turn your game into a TV show. Uh, and the pressures of just like meeting that every week meant we had to put it on hiatus, but I really hope to return to it. Cause I'm, a, I'm, I loved it. It's great. <laughs> uh, I, as yeah. a fan
0: of aquatic settings, I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Now I, I have a question. Were you at all inspired by razor coast, which is a Nicholas Lowe? I think it's Nicholas Lowe setting, uh, no. which I kickstarted
2: many years ago and is fantastic. I have not, I I'm, I'm familiar with the name. Um, But I was mostly inspired by the Cerulean Seas uh, supplements for Pathfinder. Um, Aldea Press, I think, is them. But I could be wrong on that. Uh, And this is where I I, when I when it comes to podcasting, I never remember anybody's name. Um, (laughs) uh, I was inspired by that uh, open design, the the sort of the precursor to Cobalt Press also had Sunken Empires, which I really liked and drew a lot of inspiration from like Atlantis and Moo and Lemuria. For uh, for some of the the ruins that would be scattered throughout the Poison Sea, um, most of it was just sort of extrapolating from uh, events that had happened at land between two rivers. Things that it was just like bubbling around my brain. I had this idea of like six wizards uh, as being sort of the the founding gods of a new group of people that they you know. A wizard did it, taken to its most absurd <laughs> conclusion. <laughs> everything around here is a wizard did it, um, and it being a place where for them this is not the apocalypse, this is Eden. You know, they have everything they need to live in the poisoned waters. The the pollution here is nourishing to them. the The magical radiation doesn't harm them. And whereas, like the Drylanders, they come here and they leave with tentacles and gills and all sorts of uh, grotesque mutations, the merfolk of uh, these vivamancers, these bio sorcerers uh, are, they're meant to be here. This is their home. And uh, I, I wanted to try that and explore that with the apocalypse. And this is going to get, I, hopefully this doesn't get too, too, uh, too deep. But like when I think about, say, climate change and my son, who's three now and the world he's going to live in later, I think of like, there's a sense in which he's not going to really know any different. So there's not going to be like this sense of like, Oh well, yeah, I don't remember when it used to have like catastrophic flooding every year or like violent tornadoes and hurricanes and extreme weather events or all these kinds of things that they predict. Um, so it'll just be normal to him. And I kind of wanted to, uh, create a, a a part of that setting where for these people, this is not the apocalypse. The world is not dying. This is just how things are, and you know, they're fine with it. That is, uh,
0: that is certainly one way to look at climate change and the world around you. <laughs> and then that- yeah. Honestly, I, I've I've never thought about it that way, but damn, that is uh, that's pretty deep,
2: <laughs> I try to do oh, a lot I'm of thinking a... about these things, maybe uh, too much, but yeah, I and, and it it did... take a lot of long walks in Vermont. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the Yes, perspective
3: of history. I think that's where that's coming from. It, right? Yeah, it's that it's that yeah. French
2: deep history uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, no, I a lot of ways, land between two rivers oh. is my personal just working out the fact that climate change is real and I'm going to have to live through part of it. Like, it's a place where everyone who ever lived on it has ruined this world. They've they've left it a dry desert, you know, devoid of life. And then they just, they most of them just left, you know, because they're all high-level wizards and opened up gates and hopped on dimensional spaceships and whatever other kind of weird Saturday morning cartoon idea cropped up during play, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it's the kobolds that are left, the goblins, the the ogres and all of those who uh you know it, have just been <laughs> slaughtered and pushed to the margins and labeled as villainous and evil who are like well not there's no more humans around we can finally have our own you know run of the place but they left it a mess and uh There's, yeah, there's something deeply personal going on. Surprise, surprise. Um, But I'm just glad others enjoy experiencing it and playing in it. That, uh, yeah, mostly that.
0: Yeah, that that's fantastic. Um, Actually, we're going to go to our ad break from BP right now. (laughs) Sure, Uh, yeah, why not? uh, I love Gulf shrimp, by the way. (laughs) 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 No, but uh, actually, when you you talk about it that way, it actually sounds a little bit like the road by Cormac Mm. McCarthy. Yeah, Uh, I don't know if uh, it's. I don't know if you ever if you're familiar with that story or not. But a lot of it comes with in a similar way a lot of it comes from him having really deep conversations with his son and what it means to essentially have children and what it's like to live in a future that is completely alien to what you know and knew at one point
1: yeah oh yeah uh, uh, yeah yeah it's it uh it, me a lot it, of, sorry sorry to interrupt go ahead no, no. uh it reminds me a lot of uh wind up girl if anyone's read that it's kind of weird to see that now, even though things aren't great, people view this as the golden age. And mm-hmm. like 50 years from now, people might look back at just like, oh yeah, that's where someone could travel the world. Oh you're yeah. never gonna do that. You're never For gonna real. leave this village. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, th- I think about that, you know, when we moved uh, when I moved from Texas to Vermont, uh I fly back to film and I'm fortunate enough that you know the YouTube channel and Patreon is pays you know able to afford that. But I've flown more in the last few years than I have in my entire life. And I know that every time I get on one of those planes, I'm like, there's going to be a time when I probably won't be able to do this. (laughs) Or I hope not, at least. And yeah, it kind of puts things in perspective and it's those sorts of thoughts that I let percolate and will eventually become adventures. Uh, And so I find that (laughs) to, to kind of bring it back to RPGs and whatnot, but that, you know, whatever's going on in my life, whatever I'm interested in, whatever I'm, reading and other sources like that it ends up in the game somehow. And like one of the most uh important things I I started doing as a DM was just like making sure that I curated and didn't put too much of one uh one idea into my head that um you know that, so that my games wouldn't become say too grimdark or too silly or too anything because so much about role playing and dungeon mastering was, uh, performative and a reflection of who I was that I kind of, you kind of have to be a well-rounded I don't know, half. It, it, it does you good to be a well-rounded person, uh, to, to DM. Cause you, there's so much you got to do, you know, uh, and you never know what's going to be useful or, or engaging for your friends or people playing. And
3: yeah.
0: Couldn't could not agree more. Yeah. Uh, it's it's important to be a well well rounded individual between all the wrangling and feelings and oh, rules yeah. and
2: yeah oh yeah especially like the way that it seems as though the play styles turned and is much more emotive, much more engaged with that connection to your character. I, you know, I come from a style of play that's like bring two or three characters, you're going to need them, and you know I don't get attached to my characters until they've survived for a while. And so uh, it, it it's one of those things that I notice in playing with people that like coming to the table with like a pre attached like I'm al- I already love this character, whether it's because they made them six months ago and now they're finally getting a chance to play, or you know they've read about D and D and this is their first time, like having to adjust how I approach the game and the advice I give has been a satisfying challenge because. Um, I find that that when I was growing up, it was not an emotional like. I mean, you get emotional if like something bad happened, and there were the occasional shouting matches, <laughs> but it wasn't. Oh, like, that's never happened. It, oh, yeah. Games, what yeah. are you talking about? <laughs> Nerds arguing uh, in, in a way that's unhealthy. <laughs>
0: that
1: door was shut, Rob. Right. And we,
0: <laughs> and we weren't on that bridge, Chris. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And on a lighter-hearted oh, yeah. note, though, mm-hmm. uh, on your channel, at one point you spoke about uh, eating monsters, and which oh, yeah. is something <sighs> I have never seen people do and was yeah. actually weirded out. Like, I've seen cannibalism more no. than I've seen someone want to butcher, like, a bugbear or some <laughs> weird creature and be like, oh, we're going to make some rations out of this. And uh, I guess my question is, I know you answered one half of this on the channel, but what would be your least favorite thing to be forced to eat or your favorite thing to try? Ooh,
2: <clears throat> so I mean, like I think that troll flesh would be really bad to eat Ugh. because I think it just like it. end up forming a solid block of flesh in your stomach. Oh, yeah, you know,
0: cartilage and bone too. Absolutely. Yeah,
2: yeah, all that. Yeah, and uh, but I mean, you know, there's what, what some other like I bet that any of the, any of the oozes would be terrible to eat. Like being corroded from the inside out. is probably not a good experience. <laughs> Um, but if you could deal with that acid- acidity, you know, maybe, you know, it's cooking, right? Like you're balancing sweet, salty, acid, all the other flavors. I bet you could, I bet you could, alchemy can do wonders for a gelatinous cube, a uh, jello mold. And, <laughs> exactly. uh, but, there in the name. Yeah, <laughs> right. I think I would want to eat. um all right, so here's off the top of my head. I want to know if Wyvern tastes like chicken because I see them as very big birds. <laughs> um, I want to know if uh, you know if something like um, it's the uh, the forearm sort of like or uh, the behir, right? The uh, sort of like it looks like a basilisk, but it's kind of a dragon. Kind of you know, does it? Oh,
0: the purple one that shoots lightning and it, has like eight legs.
2: Yeah, yeah. These all these yeah. uh, eight legged lizards. Um, you know, does it? You know, if you eat that, does it like make your hair stand up on end? <laughs> uh, those are the kind of things. Mind
3: sushi. That-
2: yeah, exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Some head calamari from. <laughs> <Mind> <laughs> oh. um, yeah. If offered oh. unicorn, I probably wouldn't eat it, but I bet it tastes good. You know. Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: I, not only would it taste good, there's a ninety percent chance that you will look prettier after eating it. Oh, that yeah. I might not
2: refuse then. You know. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, Jim Davis, from here, we're going to go ahead and pivot into our world building jam session.
2: Sounds good. And
0: to kind of break this down, we're going to start off, we're going to create something collaboratively together. All right. We're going to start off by figuring out the genre, which can be science fiction, fantasy, horror, modern day, romance, or we roll twice and combine the two. And then we're going to go ahead and add the subject, which could be an item, a monster, a place, a historical figure an event or again we roll twice and combine the two mm. next we're going to go ahead and create a theme or we're or, or going to focus on a theme which is madness sacrifice love metamorphosis pride and honor the unspeakable triumph or hope then once we're done with that we're going to build whatever we have and then about halfway through we're going to add a twist, which I'm not going to reveal any of, and uh, yeah, we will start there. So we're going to roll some dice yeah. and figure out what we got here. So this is going to be the, for the genre. All right. First off, I have uh, romance, which I'm very excited. Oh, very for. good. Very good. Uh, we have a subject which is going to be monster, monster, <laughs> a monster. Oh yes. <laughs> and uh, finally, we have the theme, which is. Madness. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a romance setting with a monster and a theme of madness. Jim Davis, as the guest of honor, you get to start us off. So
2: go right ahead. All right. So off the top of my head, the monster is being pursued by commoners right people who don't want around maybe it's a monster that has like a dangerous aura or something you know like a fire mm-hmm. aura or a poison aura or something uh and a curse of attraction has been placed on it such that these villagers are like deeply madly in love and want to bring it gifts and like just spend time with it it's not sexual it's like they just need to be around it and like i need you in my life medusa uh, you know, or, or, or something great like gorgon or whatever. um and so this there's a rash of, of these monsters fleeing across the countryside. um but everywhere they go, they leave this trail of both heartbroken individuals longing for a connection to the, the the cost of you know uh physical injury, uh the loss of uh, of life that that comes from their uh maddening devotion and like maybe as the story progresses the madness gets more and more like possessive and and creepy and like it's a monster cult but the monster is like powerless within it captive by the mass of 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 creature you know of people that are amassed around it that that's that's where i'm i'm thinking that that is that is beautiful and tragic
0: especially from the monster's perspective it is essentially the head of a cult that it has no, it
3: wants nothing to do yeah. with yeah it like yeah. flips it on its head i love that it's the yeah. monster's not the villain in this case at all
2: no it's like it's yeah. one of those monsters that wants to be left alone you know that that uh, maybe it's someone who is cursed you know to be a monster and and like the curse also instead of people being repulsed it's like you're repulsive but others are attracted to you so you hate yourself but others, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's a bit too much uh, self-mirror kind of uh, reflection thing. Anyway. <laughs> uh, you could sympathize know, with that creature. You could, <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it's like something needs to be done. So it, like, I like that scenario, I guess, because it compels action, but it's not necessarily violence. Mm-hmm. And I, I, mm-hmm. like, I like leaving the door open for nonviolent action-oriented solutions uh, just because. Um, but yeah, that, that's sort of where my, my thoughts are.
0: No, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. And uh, what else can we do to kind of expand? I, I feel like that's such a like baked-in idea that like, what is there any way that we can expand on that or we won't go straight to the twist? I
3: mean, there's like a third prong, right? Like mm-hmm. The adventurers have to either, whoever the, the protagonist here is, has to both deal with these commoners who aren't necessarily to blame and mm-hmm. also save the creatures so they can save the commoners. So they've got like a third, there's a third leg to the situation. Yeah.
0: I also love the idea that like you're as an adventurer you're probably coming across like the aftermath of all of this right like mm-hmm. you're watching young maidens who are so heartbroken by the leaving of their master that they are throwing themselves off of bridges and mm. they're causing great self-harm and so you're like oh there's got to be some kind of awful thing that's happening
1: yeah i was the gonna shi- say Shito situation yeah what's that i, I was going I was going to say that uh, another thing that the cult or the following of this can be doing is it's pushing people away because it doesn't want to share its lover, but it's a double action thing at the fact that it's also preventing more people from coming under the spell. Hmm. So the violent acts that they're doing of pushing people away and making sure that no one sees their, their lover is actually beneficial, but it's something that someone's trying to stop. Like, oh, they're probably holding that or whatever it is hostage mm-hmm. like maybe the adventurers or maybe no one knows what it actually looks like and it's right, even right. weirder when they eventually reveal it or see it it's just like oh what the oh it's beautiful
0: yeah i, I can even imagine <laughs> it being like just a nobleman or you know like who's mm-hmm. just a dark brooding mr darcy type mm-hmm. and you know he's got his hand against the wall you know as he's as he's backlit by the fireplace bringing back to romance obviously <laughs> and you know like you're kind of like oh what is his deal and then you know, some. It, it, I imagine that it has to be a trigger of some kind that this this enraptured madness kind of takes hold, right? Oh, yeah. Like, I think I like it more as, as a curse, like you were saying, Jim, mm-hmm. where it's there's something that happens where anyone that he falls in love with or anyone who, you know, something like that, it's it, there's got to be a trigger point to it where that is what triggers the infatuation. Yeah. The
1: nobleman is his guard so that they can't view the monster and he's keeping it away from everyone.
0: Oh, so he's, so he's imprisoned himself to, to keep everyone safe. Oh
2: man. Yes. I like
1: that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that. There's,
2: there's so much room for like half truths and misinformation and, and, you know, it's all, this is almost a kind of scenario where you don't need to fill in a ton of details because like Mm -hmm. the players will immediately start speculating and handing you little nuggets to, to fill out, uh, the, the, uh, the narrative there, but. I like it. It's a lot of. There's a lot of ways it could go
1: as well. Uh, yeah. Is it okay to kill it? I I don't know if I can kill this and it'd be a good thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. a question. <laughs> Maybe I, it's like I a celestial like... or something
2: like that. Even if you're going with the monster. Oh. Like, you know, that's cool i love losing finding ways to use celestials as as antagonists if not you know villains they they
0: always feel ancillary like they're never going to be used because like whenever you're going to play whenever you're going to fight an archon like come on right you can't (laughs) even
2: summon them you know like there's so like a gate before you can even summon anyway
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right so i feel like we've got such a solid concept we're going to go ahead and just fuck it up by throwing in a twist let's do it i'm going to roll our d20 i'm not going to mention all of these because that's just too much let's see what we got going so on second thought, make it a happy ending. Mm. Uh, so, so we now have to take the oh, whole thing. Okay. Oh, and all right. now we have to go ahead and make a happy ending out oh, okay, of okay. it somehow. Expectations okay.
2: So the curve. curse, the curse is the result of of the monster not being with their true love. That, oh, right? Oh, so you, So the, the adventure then becomes about f- discovering it, finding the true love, and then reuniting them. Yes. Oh, that's through perfect. The, oh, through my the guy. The possessive Amazing. madness. Mic drop. I
0: yeah. mean, that's perfect. That's yeah, I no, it. I, i yeah, we can't, we can't do that. We can't add to that. that. Yeah. We <laughs> got <But laughs> that's, that's, yeah, and, and, yeah. and scene. I want to uh, play that game right yeah, now. You know? oh, right? Let's do it. Some yeah. Monster yeah. Hearts next yeah. week. You
1: know.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, that that's excellent, Jim. Thank you. go cool. cool. Uh, okay. So uh, that's going to conclude our world build, Jim. Uh, Jim, thank you very much for that. And I'm going to go ahead and roll right into some rapid fire questions. Cool. Uh, Jim, my wife wants to know, Hmm. is cereal a soup?
2: Oh, (laughs) I think it's a cold soup, Uh, but nothing's (laughs) emulsified in it, right? Like what else would, I mean, if it's not a soup, then milk is the condiment to grain oh yeah a grain salad a grain salad it's It's a cold grain salad yeah i like that with a with a a milk dressing
0: Mm -hmm, with a milk dressing
3: (laughs) it's a milk lasagna i I have a question
2: for i have a question for your wife is an open-faced sandwich a sandwich
3: oh controversy yeah
0: she works for a food magazine. I will
2: ask
3: her. She's probably interested itself. by the question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, Jim. Uh second question. What RPGs have you been playing recently?
2: Ooh, I have been uh playing original D that is 1974 uh little oh, brown books uh D Spicy. Um, oh my God. <laughs> Yes, I really it's it's one of my favorites. Um and uh, what else? I've been reading up on some fifth edition, but not playing any right now. And gosh, I don't, you know, I'm in a slump now that I think about it. Oh, well, I hope to be playing more soon.
0: Of course, of course. And uh, our another another real quick question. Who do you want to plug? Who's not you? Ooh.
2: oh, wow.
0: You can always say us. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, yeah,
2: that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay so all right so if you if y'all are y'all familiar with uh dale kingsmill's uh youtube channel
3: she no not is, at all
2: she uh does a, all kinds of stuff it's not just D, but she's got a lot of like practical D tip type shows but she also has a lot of shows where she's like, like does these deep dives into fairy tales and folklore and sort of just like investigating like where does thieves can't come from like where does and, and going back to say like the historical roots of hobo signs and code words amongst smugglers and things like that uh and so i find her channel uh, it's on youtube uh, dale kingsmill d-a-e-l uh kingsmill uh is uh, or monarchs factory sorry is what the name of the youtube channel is kingsmill is her name um and uh yeah it's just a great channel to uh be inspired by
0: that's excellent and uh, chris and or, or daniel do either of you have any other questions for jim davis chris after you
1: <laughs> i mean i really really just had that uh that one about the food is what i'm always fascinated by but uh <laughs> right. oh uh actually no one last question being a texas expat i have a question do yeah. a lot of people there play deadlands or is it really just hate it Oh, yeah. I don't
2: know. I've never seen anyone play. I know people must. So I don't know. I, I'm curious as well. <laughs> is there is, is Texas portrayed particularly nastily in Deadlands or something?
1: Well it's I mean, it's kind fitting. of
2: like Ghost Cowboys
1: and yeah, like zombie cowboys. And, ghost Cowboys and Indians is really what it's yeah, about. Sure. And yeah. I the people I've seen play it play like there's a lot of stereotypes oh, sure. that get thrown around. Sure. Um <laughs> It happens. But yeah, I'm just curious about people who are based in that area, Uh, how it's viewed. I'm not
2: sure that I've ever seen anyone or heard of any games uh, uh, of Deadlands. It's always been one of those I've wanted to try because it looks neat, but um, I'm not sure that I can answer that. All right. Uh, Jim, uh, why don't
0: you go oh, ahead and wait, plug? I, I still have one
3: question. Oh, I have a rapid fire question for you. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> what you was know. your favorite critical failure or critical success in an RPG that you ever played?
2: Oh, oh, okay. Let me. All right. Just, <laughs> I think like oh, I. All right. I'll I'll go ahead and say. It. So the last time I played D D, which is like last week i ended up in the boss fight this this is with a character where after uh rolling for stats and adjustments i ended up with three 18s and a 16
0: and i have just like
2: whiffed the entire five levels of combat that we're in just like i'll get one hit in and the rest of the combat's a whiff six criticals in that this is this was on roll 20 as well so i don't want to hear any bad mouthing about the rng on roll 20 after this uh (laughs) Which I have my secret suspicion of, uh, but or secret theory, uh, theory on, but yeah, the last time I played, it was just one of those moments where, I, because I've DM'd so often, the die rolling, I didn't get it from a player's perspective until I did a lot more playing, which I've had an opportunity to do recently, and uh, it's, I can see why the players get so amped and excited about it because when i'm a dm it's like i'm gonna roll so many of these dice that's meaningless you know and i don't really want to crit on you six times in a row because that would sort of suck for all of us (laughs) but you know forever dm (laughs) right uh so yeah i that uh this is very fun times then
0: (laughs) all right uh jim why don't you go ahead and plug your show and uh yeah, go ahead. Cool. Uh,
2: so, yeah, we are uh, WebDM over on YouTube where we talk about uh, Dungeons and Dragons and just tabletop RPGs in general, looking to uh, set your imagination alight and uh, help you run a great game for your friends. Uh, we have a second YouTube channel, WebDM Plays, which is where a lot of our live streamed uh, shows end up. So, if you didn't catch them on Twitch, uh, they are on a second YouTube channel, WebDM Plays. Um, we have a Twitch channel, although right now we don't have a lot of stuff on it. Um, I don't know when uh, I don't because the date has not been set, but very soon, uh, hopefully uh, before February or March uh, is up, I'll be running uh, some of Sly Flourish's uh, Grindelroot. Um, he's he looked for a channel who wanted to sort of showcase it, and we're like, yeah, we'll absolutely do that. So uh, we'll be able to showcase some of his uh, adventures and uh, prep style there, um, and I think. Yeah, that's about it. We have a Patreon. If you like the pod, if you like this show, then we do a podcast there where it's basically me and Pruitt just running our mouths off. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I think that's about it. We're doing some books and other things that will come out later this year. But right now, I cannot say any more than that. So. All right.
0: All right. Jim Davis, thank you so much for joining us here. And uh, yeah, thank you very
3: much. pleasure. Yeah.
0: And we're back. We really hope you enjoyed our interview with Jim Davis, gentlemen. What was your favorite thing about the interview? What did you learn from the most?
3: I learned that you guys are both huge history nerds. Look, uh, <laughs> game
0: recognized game, and when we started talking about history, I couldn't help but feel it
3: was a like little hearts everywhere. Yeah, you know, yeah.
0: Like... There was a genuine flutter in my mm-hmm. heart as I'm talking about like the type of I, I love history. I'm not a history major because various reasons I don't but know
3: why not this makes no sense to me
0: yeah, look i think it makes a lot more sense that i'm an english major but anyway that's not important right now uh yeah no i would agree with that i think that that's probably one of my favorite like one of my favorite things to talk about is like yeah let's get deep into the history absolutely chris
3: can't remember anything <laughs> i can't remember things we were drunk i mean the whole time so yeah. there's that yeah. completely drunk.
1: high and high, yes
0: Daniel, you weren't even here.
1: I remember, <laughs> I remember that he is no longer living in Texas, and also I still don't know if people in Texas play Deadlands.
0: Yeah, I mean that's just a mystery. Hey, if you are uh, listening to this in Texas or are from Texas, let yeah. us know how imp- how much you love Deadlands, the RPG setting, and whether or not you think it's a fair representation of Deadlands. Is is Deadlands the tabletop RPG? The Boston accent of Texas. It's just a nothing but a collection. Yeah, exactly.
3: Are there actually zombie cowboys in Texas?
0: Obviously there are, but I mean, come on. People just don't talk about it. True. So Texas listeners, send us an email at worldbuildwithus, or go ahead and send us a tweet Twitter at letsworldbuild, and let us know how offensive Deadlands is as an RPG. And until next time, remember that we love you very much and we hope you have a good week.
1: Good night.